Today we have another special speaker, Howard Anderson. He's been coming to the church here for a long time, and he has something to share with us today. Howard grew up in this church when it wasn't Regen. It was Lakeside Baptist Church. <laughs> I feel like we could have the benediction you want right now. And you're probably wondering, what's he doing up here, and where is Pastor Albert? Well... He's out of town at a conference, and I have no idea what I'm doing here, really. But I'm going to ask you a question. I wonder if any of you have a verse that you call your special verse. You know, that one that means a lot to you, that you've committed to memory, so that no matter where you are, no matter where you go, it's there. Things get a little stressful. You can retrieve it and maybe share it with someone. I remember when I was in college, we had a college Bible study, and we were in the book of Romans, and somebody read a passage And it included a verse that really hit me, and I thought, wow, what a promise. And as I read it over a few more times, I thought, yep, that's going to be my verse. I'm going to adopt this verse. I have no idea if that's legal, but in any event, it's mine. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, also at that time, our country was involved in a war that had been going on already for a number of years, And unlike today, where we have an all-volunteer military, back then they had the draft, which meant if you were an 18-year-old male, you could be inducted into the armed forces. But you could postpone this if you were in college and kept up with your class. You could get a student deferment until you graduated. And so I thought, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And as graduation's approaching, I'm realizing now what? I've got to make a plan, so I thought it over. Simple plan. I'm going to go on to grad school, get my master's, then I'll interview with some companies and pick out the one best suited for me. I'll climb the corporate ladder, become extremely wealthy, retire at an early age, and settle down on my villa in the south of France. That was my plan. Just keep it simple. And so I went on to grad school for one semester, and then it was summer break, so I decided I'll get a job over the summer and accumulate some funds for the next year of school which I did, but also that summer I received a letter, a rather official-looking letter, that I didn't even want to open. I just went away for a while and literally prayed that it would go away too, but it didn't, and I opened it. It said, greetings. They actually say greetings. This is to inform you that you've hereby been inducted in the United States Army to report to the induction center on such and such a date. Bring a toothbrush and a warm jacket, and that's it. And so I thought, wait a minute, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And I thought, well, this isn't good. There's a war going on. And this is not part of my plan. This is a major bump in the road of my plan. Now, if this is God's plan for my life, then there's God's plan, my plan. They're not coinciding, and I'm arrogantly thinking, well, one of us has got it wrong. And so... It wasn't long after that I find myself up at Fort Lewis, Washington, beginning basic training along with a lot of other rather confused and bewildered individuals. And basic is an interesting scene. You're assigned a platoon, and each platoon has a drill sergeant. I don't know if you've ever met anybody without a humor, like they were born without one or had it surgically removed, but these guys have no sense of humor. It seems their job is to make your life as miserable as possible. And our drill sergeant, I must admit, was really good at his job. He told us right off, we will be the best platoon in the company. And in order to be the best, when normal training is over for the day, we will stay out an extra an hour to train so we will be the best. And I thought, well, thank you, Lord. I get to be in the best platoon. And so 
We trained in the rainforest, which is aptly named because for eight weeks it rained every day but eight. And then after two months, it actually did stop raining because it started to snow. So we are low crawling in the mud and firing our weapon in the mud and doing sit-ups and push-ups in the mud. And he'd yell out things like, what's the spirit of the bayonet? And you have to yell, kill, kill, kill. And then you chase one of your buddies around and you throw him to the ground and you kill him. But I thought... I can deal with this for eight weeks, and then it'll be over. I'll get a good job because I'm a college graduate. And I also brought a letter from my employer where I worked when I was at school telling me what a great office worker I was. And they had an open-door policy. You could see the commander. And so I went and saw him and told him all this stuff. And he said, well, we'll certainly take that into consideration. And I left that meeting feeling really good. And I also learned that for every guy who goes into the infantry, There's 10 people to back him up in support groups, cooks, clerks, transportation, all this kind of stuff. Because my folks were worried, you know, my mother, and there's a war, and I said, don't worry, Mom, I'll be fine, because I told her these reasons. And so then it's time to finish training. We're going to get our orders. This is our MOS, our military occupational specialty, what we're going to be doing for the remainder of our active duty. So it's a big deal. And so I'm heading out to the parade field where the bulletin board is to check where the orders are posted and a, a buddy of mine is coming back, and I said, well, how'd it go for you? And he says, I'm going to Fort Knox, Kentucky. I'm going to be in armor. And I said, well, that should be okay. And he said, yeah, I'm good with it. And uh, he said, did you see yours? And I go, no, not yet. He says, I couldn't believe it. And I go, what do you mean? He says, you're going infantry. And I just went, what? And my heart just kind of crashed. And I went over and confirmed it. And I thought of my verse, and we know that in all things, God works for the good. <laughs> And I'm thinking, this is not good. And my faith was being tested, and I was coming up short. I was really shaky faith, cracks in my faith. And that's when Satan can go to work. He just slithers into those cracks and fills your head with doubts. And we know that all things work together for the good, eh? I don't think so. I don't think your God really cares about you one way or the other, if you ask me. And uh, infantry? No. Those are the guys who mostly die in war. And your little verse says, for those who love him. Are you sure you love him? And you say you do, but those are only words. And I'm thinking, hmm, yeah. And by the way, Father, what am I now going to tell my mother? So while most of the guys are going home for two weeks leave and then heading off to forts throughout the nation, the unlucky 11, as we were known, threw our gear in the back of a Dusenaf and went about 200 meters across the parade field to our new barracks and immediately began advanced training infantry, which we now took a bit more seriously. It's actually kind of interesting. I mean, you get pretty proficient at firing the M16, the M60 machine gun, the 50 caliber, the M79 grenade launcher, and you're throwing grenades and you're learning map reading and first aid, and it's interesting stuff. But we're coming near the end, and we're about to get our orders for where we're going to be serving for the next year at least. And the company ahead of us down the road had got their orders. They're all going to Germany. I thought, wow, an entire infantry battalion is being replaced in Germany, and we're next to graduate, and we're just kind of floating. I mean, I can handle Germany. Then we got our orders, and most of us were ordered to report to the Republic of South Vietnam. I knew in the back of my head there was that possibility, but there it was. And so we went home for two weeks over Christmas, and then we flew to Vietnam. We landed at Benoit Air Force Base near Saigon about 11 o'clock at night. 
And they open the door and we head down the steps and just this rush of heat and humidity that I've never known before. I've never been in that kind of weather and we just came from the snow and I said, we're not ready for this. And I thought, what's it going to be like when the sun comes up? But we got down to the tarmac. The guy says, get on the bus. And this bus had wire mesh all around the windows. I don't know if you've seen the bus that goes to Santa Rita with the inmates. It looked like that. And I thought to the bus driver, what's the deal, man? You're afraid we're going to jump out the window? I mean, where are we going to go? And he said, that's in case somebody throws a grenade in the window. And if they do, get under the seat, put your hands over your head, and do not move. And I thought, ah, welcome to Vietnam. So we went to the replacement station. I had no idea what division I was going to be in. But after a couple days, orders came down. I'm going to the 1st Air Cavalry Division, Air Mobile, which I'd heard a lot about back at Fort Lewis. It's a division that has literally a couple of thousand helicopters, which means they're very mobile. If the enemy's over here and you're over here, they can pick up an entire company within an hour and put you over there. So they tend to see a lot of action. And I thought, well, thank you, Lord, I'm in the CAV. So we went up to the Central Highlands where they were training division headquarters and processed in. And I'm doing some paperwork with a guy, and I noticed that he has an infantry patch on his fatigue shirt. And I thought, man, you're infantry. You got a job like this? How did you manage that? And he said, easy, three Purple Hearts. I go, oh, so you get wounded on three separate occasions, you have a chance for a rear job. And he said, yeah, that's how I did it. I said, well, I'll have to remember that. But (laughs) he told me, he said, listen, I just got the word. Tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, there's going to be a meeting. They need 10 lifeguards. I went, what? You mean there's like pools around here? And he said, yeah, in the division rears, they actually have swimming pools and they need lifeguards. I was the first one in line. And when they opened the door, there were 12 of us applying. I thought, these are great odds for the best job in country. So I go in, sit down, and the guy in charge says, first thing I have to say, anyone here with a critical MOS need not apply. I said, what's a critical MOS? He says, what's yours? I said, 11 Bravo, infantry. My friend, that is critical. And so I got up and walked out. I'm the only one that does. The cooks and the clerks become lifeguards. I went over to a secluded area, and I just sat on a rock and bowed my head, and I just prayed, Father, I have no idea what this is about, but I'm tired of fighting and riding this emotional roller coaster, and I'm casting my, all my cares upon you. I'm just assuming that there's a reason for this. I have no idea what it is, but I trust that you'll watch over me. And so I finished division training, got my M16 zeroed at the range, and then we flew south to a little village called Quan Loy where our battalion rear was, Got our backpack and ammo and gear, and four of us flew by helicopter out to the fire bases, which is where the artillery is based out in the jungle that supports the infantry companies in the field. Got some more gear, and then we flew out to our company. They had, with machetes, cut an area just large enough for a helicopter to land, and they dropped us off. And the supply sergeant comes over and tells us our positions, and he told me I was going to be in the 1st Platoon Machine Gun Squad, and he took me over to where the guys were, and said, introduce yourselves, and he left. And I am looking at the sorriest group of guys I've ever seen in my life. I mean, their fatigues were ripped. They were filthy. They looked like they were half alive laying in the shade of some trees. And I thought, dear Lord, I've got to spend the next year of my life with these guys. The squad leader introduces himself. I'm Snuffy Smith from Lithia Springs, Georgia. And the gunner said, I'm Terry Ammons from Waycross, Georgia. And another guy 
I'm Jim Rees from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And the next guy, I'm Floyd Rogers from upstate New York. <laughs> and there was a guy from Minnesota and Kansas, guys from all over. And Snuffy says, where y'all from, Anderson? And I said, oh, I'm from California. He says, you a surfer? Um, so, yeah, I've done a little body, but most, mostly body work, not board work. He says, they give you an entrenching tool? I go, no. He says, you got one now? He tosses it. Terry says, you got a claymore of mine? No. Here you go. Another guy, you got smoke grenades? Yep, I got two. You'll need four. And they just started unloading their gear on me. And then it was time to pack up and move out. And my pack is killing me. I mean, this thing's over 70 pounds. But more than anything, I just wanted to drink water. It is so hot and humid. And uh, you can't. You just take a sip. You have to ration it because it's got to last three days. But God was so good to me because for almost two weeks, we had no contact with the enemy, which is pretty rare. And I had a chance to climatize and get used to this new environment. While we were training at Fort Lewis, most of the guys that were training us had just come back from Vietnam. So once in a while, we'd kind of corner them and ask them, you know, after a formal session, what's it really like over there? And one guy told me, he says, all I can tell you is your good times are really, really good, and your bad times are really, really bad. And he could not have nailed it better in one sentence because it wasn't all bad over there. We had some good times. If we ever had a chance to set up near a stream or a bomb crater filled with water, these uh, B-52 strikes, they drop 110 750-pound bombs in a row, and they make a crater 30 feet in diameter and 10 to 12 feet deep. So if they've been there a while, they'll fill with water and filter out, and it looks like a swimming pool. And sometimes the ferns, they grow so fast, it looks like somebody landscaped it. So if we had a chance to set up near one of these and things were kind of mellow, we'd just jump in and take a swim and a bath. And it was just so amazing because... Uh, it sounds kind of mundane over here, but everything's magnified over there, especially if you haven't taken a shower for three weeks. It's really nice. And we got resupply every three days, which means we got mail, which was a big deal. And usually one guy in the squad each supply day would get a package. Whoever gets a package is the most popular guy in the squad. You're just kind of hovering over him, watching him unwrap it, and he wishes he could hide, but that's not going to happen. And uh, he says, it's just socks. I mean, it smells like cookies. And Okay, so we share, but everybody shares. It all works out. One day, a guy gets a package that's got a can like this of Betty Crocker ready-to-eat chocolate fudge pudding. And we're like hovering over him with our spoons out. And he opens the can. We each take a bite, and this stuff is like, it's beautiful. It's so amazing. We're riding home, send pudding. And we actually took the label off the can, and on the back we wrote a letter. Dear Betty, we love your pudding. Please stock it in the PXs. You will make a fortune. And we signed our names and mailed it. And about a month later, we get a call from our supply clerk in the rear on the phone. He radios out and says, i got three cases of Betty Crocker pudding here. What do I do with it? <laughs> so we started the pudding club. And every three to six days, we'd have a can sent out, and there were five of us in the club. So just before dark, we'd meet kind of secretly and sit in a circle. It was like going to church. You'd just take a bite and pass the can. And this butterscotch sliding down your throat. If you should close your eyes, you were home. 
or anywhere you wanted to be. You weren't in the jungle. It was amazing. Your priorities change over there the first three months, like everybody's got a picture of a nice-looking girl. Nice. Huh? After three months, we're cutting out pictures of food. <laughs> I had a pinup in my hip pocket that carefully folded, and I'd pull it out once in a while, and I'd say, Larry, check this. That the most beautiful casserole you ever seen in your life? <laughs> Look at the cheese on that thing. Olives. But we also had a church service once in a while. Every maybe six to eight weeks, the uh, chaplain would get to fly out in a helicopter, and a bunch of us would just get together in a little section, and he'd pass out these little hymn books, and we'd sing a couple hymns kind of softly. And then he'd have a little message, and then he'd serve communion. And it was really special, and the guys really appreciated it. So those are good times. As far as combat, there's two types mainly. The firefight was the most common. We would move from early morning till late afternoon. It's just search for the enemy. And we're in the jungle, which is dense. You usually can't see more than 15 feet in any direction. So either we'd find them or they'd be waiting in ambush for us. If they did, it could get serious because it's close in fighting. If they open up, you just instantly hit the dirt. You find cover, drop your pack. You're looking in the trees for snipers, and you're listening for direction of fire. You're making instant decisions. Do I return fire and give away my position, or do I throw a grenade? If somebody gets wounded, it's like priority changes. How do we get him back to safety so the medic can get to work on him? So this is happening. This is just this wave of fear comes over you and envelops you, but you're trying to suppress it by keeping busy and doing what you have to do. You never know when it's going to happen. You're on a platoon patrol, for example, and, and all of a sudden you get hit. There was an anthill. It just happened to be five feet from me. I used to hate these anthills because, I mean, they just get all over you. But I loved this anthill because it found cover for me and another guy. I yelled back to John, this kid who I just met. He just came in our company eight days. And I, I yelled back to him for him to move up, get better cover, but he's laying on his rifle, and I just ran back to him. And I lifted his head, and he just expelled his last breath, and that was it. And I just wanted to stay with him, but somebody opened up on me with an automatic weapon, and, and I think I broke the 30-foot dash and just dove headfirst for that anthill. And the rounds went right over my head, and one of them went into the skull, the guy waiting for me. But he lived, but that was his ticket home. He made it. So you just never know when it's going to happen. The other type is incoming, and that usually happened at night. We would move till late afternoon and then set up for the night. We'd start digging in immediately. Two guys are digging a foxhole. One guy's cutting trees for overhead cover and filling sandbags. Another guy's further out just pulling guard while we work. And another guy's setting out the trip flares and claymore mines. If it's monsoon, you've got to build a hooch to keep the rain off you. And then you pick your guards for the night. And by nightfall, everything stops. As soon as it gets dark, you have to stop. No noise discipline takes effect, and you cannot make a move or a sound. One day, for example, it's just a bad day, a lot of bad stuff going on, and it was going late, and we had to get out of there. So we were only able to move a couple hundred meters, and we start digging in. And we only got our whole half dug, and we had to stop because of night. So we're just sitting there, and then all of a sudden we hear the sound we dreaded most, the sound of a popping mortar tube. This means that the enemy has a pretty good fix on our position, and they set up a mortar, and they drop the round in, and it makes a pop sound, which means it's making its upward trajectory and it's heading your way. And that's the period of time you have to dive into your hole and uh, take cover. And this hole is shallow because we hadn't finished it, so we're just pancaked on each other. And 
I wasn't entirely below grade, and the round crashes in, and it's loud, which means it's close. It's pitch dark, but you can calculate. When the next round comes in, and it's much louder, so we know they're walking the tube, they're just raising it a couple of degrees, which means each round is closer and closer. And the next one comes in, and I'm just laying there, and I'm calculating in my head, I think, four more rounds, and that's it. And it was the only time I just knew we were going to die. It's the only time I ever prayed, not that God would save us or anything. I just prayed there was such a thing as instant death, that there'd be no pain, and then the blink of an eye would be in his presence. And a couple more rounds came in, and then it stopped. And when we knew it was over, we crawled out of our hole and uh, heard our artillery rounds impacting on the mortar origination site, so they had taken off. But then we heard the moans, and we knew that some of our buddies weren't so fortunate and we crawled in the dark towards their cries and got to them and dragged them to the center of our perimeter so the medics could get to work on them. But then we heard the bad news that one of our holes did take a direct hit and six of our buddies were killed instantly. I was so disoriented going here and there, I knew I had to get back to my position, and it took me about 15 minutes crawling around. Finally got back there, we got our buddies together, and then a fitting conclusion, it started to rain, so we just sat there and waited for first light. When morning comes, the helicopters come one at a time to take out the wounded and the dead. And on one of the birds was a chaplain. I recognized him instantly. It was Chaplain Brennan from Fort Lewis. I knew him well because I applied for chaplain's assistant, trying to get out of this. But there were no openings. And I said, what are the chances I'd see you out here in the middle of this jungle? He came out and conducted a short memorial service for us. And then he was gone and we packed up and disappeared in the jungle to continue the mission, and, and on and on it went. So I've had time a couple of years after that to reflect and see how God works. When you're in the midst of this, you think, what good could possibly come from all this? But God reveals things to you. First of all, right off, I realized my first impression was so wrong of those guys. Those guys I worked with were the salt of the earth. We became really close. In combat, you develop a bond that can't be broken. And I have friends to this day, and I thank God for the opportunity to work and serve with them. They would literally risk their life for me. And uh, that's a great feeling. And you learn a lot when you're tested. God teaches you a lot about who you are that you'd never know. I became a stronger person, more mature, more compassionate. And when I got home over the next couple of years, this community right here changed a lot. Thousands of refugees were settling here from Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos. And you've seen the results of that. And to its credit, this church reached out to them. And as a result, there was a large Cambodian church here, a large Laotian Min church, and a smaller Vietnamese congregation. And the kids were all in public school, and they were learning English. And so we had a vibrant Sunday school class, all taught in English, all of them together. And God was kind of working on me. And I was reluctant, but some people convinced me, and I became one of the Sunday school teachers, which turned out to be an amazing opportunity and privilege for me and the biggest responsibility I've probably ever had. And what God revealed to me is that he'd been preparing me for that ministry over there because I knew what those kids had been through. I'd been there, and they knew I was there, and we bonded, and we just grew together in Christ. And over the years, they became more mature in their faith, And eventually, they became Sunday school teachers in their congregations. And today, as young adults, they are leaders in their church. And some of them are actually working full-time 
in God's ministry in various forms. Now, I know that all of you have had some tough times, physical, spiritual, emotional, financial, whatever it is. You know that when you're in the midst of it, it's not fun. You don't like it. You're wondering, why me and what good could come from this? I want it over. But we have to keep remembering that God's looking at the big picture in your life, what will result from this. He wants you to grow. He does want the best for you. He wants you to cast all your cares upon him. He wants you to trust in him with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. This verse does not say that in some things or most things. It literally says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So I would say, hang in there. Be patient. God loves you. Let's pray. I want to thank you, Father, for the opportunity for each person to be here this morning. I'm thankful that we have this place to fellowship each Sunday, and I pray that we'll just continue to communicate with you through prayer and seek your wisdom, and I pray that we will continue to search your scriptures and find those promises contained therein that provide us with comfort and wisdom that we need from day to day. Watch over us throughout this week, we pray, Father, in thy precious name. Amen.